Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, here's a little bit of a trivia question for you. Um, Other than God and human beings... What's the other thing most frequently mentioned in the Bible that's living? So other than God and human beings, what other living thing is most frequently mentioned in Scripture? Anybody want to wager some guesses? I would think kind of like some kind of animals or something of that nature. Sheep, yes, sheep, lamb. Uh, It's actually trees, uh, or some aspect of trees, kind of including that umbrella under tree, tree, fruit, branch, root, forest, vine, leaf. We'll kind of combine all of that, but putting all of that together, which somehow references a tree, that's mentioned 811 times in Scripture. So it's a pretty big deal. Trees are a pretty big deal in Scripture. Starts out all the way in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Uh, God creates trees, it says in verse 11. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation and seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. Verse 12, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. Uh, Verse 29, it says kind of one of the primary functions of trees in God's created world. Uh, Here's what it says. This is before um, God actually gave human beings the permission or the ability to eat meat. And so trees were primarily a form of food and sustenance for human beings. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that is fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And so you find trees in Genesis chapter 1, and a primary reason for trees or a primary function is actually to give life to human beings. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, God gives some instructions. He says, Then the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for fruit. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it seems like they're actually really trees, but they also have representations. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, sometimes, like, what is that? Probably what it's intending there is the tree of self-determination. It's not, hey, you'll know what good and evil is, but the tree of good and evil, that if they ate of that, they were instructed not to, It was an expression of Adam and Eve self-determining who they are. And then the tree of life. Kind of the best that we can make of that, the tree of life was this tree that would establish the permanency of Adam and Eve's relationship with God. And so the test of Genesis seems to be 
that they were not to eat of the tree of self-determination, determining right and wrong for themselves, but were instead to actually eat of the tree of life, which would permanently seal their oneness with God, their relationship with him. But rather than eating of the tree of life, they actually ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, a tree of self-determination, and therefore became separated from God. Trees are mentioned numbers of times throughout the Old Testament as well as new, as I already said. But in the tree also occurs in Revelation chapter 21. Before I get there, this is kind of interesting as well. Uh, certainly, it's a modern-day thing to see exactly families as trees, uh, but that idea of the fruitfulness of families being equated to the fruitfulness of trees and the branches of trees was actually an ancient idea. Here's a little interesting thing you may have never have thought of. Isn't it fascinating that Genesis 1 begins with a tree, physical life? Matthew chapter 1 begins with another kind of tree. It's the tree of Jesus' genealogy. And so Genesis 1 begins with a tree that brings physical food. Matthew chapter 1 is the tree of Jesus, his family. And Jesus is the tree that brings life, brings connection with God. And then this is going to tie in later on, so kind of keep all of this in mind. The book of Revelation ends referencing the tree of life. But it's also brought up in, Genesis, in Revelation chapter 2 that we're going to have read here in a bit. Uh, Diane, if you could come up. Je Diane is going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And when she gets to verse 7, you're going to hear the tree of life that's referenced in Genesis chapter 1 or 2. And you'll hear it again in Revelation chapter 21. But we find it in Revelation chapter 2. Now, just a couple of, of things with this. Uh, remember, this is being written to the church at Ephesus. There'll be a couple maps behind me on the screen just to kind of put it in perspective. Uh, the darker shaded area is where all of the churches are located that John is writing to. Uh, that's the area of modern-day Turkey, sometimes called Asia Minor. Just to zoom that in a little bit, it shows the specific locations of the seven churches. Uh, John is writing from the island of Patmos. He's not taking a vacation there. He's been banned there by the Roman government so that his ideas can influence others, so that as he talks about the truth of Jesus, that doesn't influence others. He's banned to the island of Patmos. He writes this letter, but this letter is going to travel to each of those seven churches. Kind of makes sense that it goes to Ephesus first because that's geographical, geographically closest to Patmos. And so the deliverer would first get to Ephesus and then would continue to make the uh, route around to the other churches. So Diana is going to read a Jesus' words that John is writing, particularly to Ephesus, but all of, the, all of the seven churches hear these words, and we hear them today as well. So Diana, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Okay, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. 
Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaeans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thank you, Diana. And you could hear the word tree of life mentioned there in verse 7. So verse 1, to recount that, says as the angel of, of the church of Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this letter is written directly to the church in Ephesus. Now, what's fascinating is this, and we referenced this a little bit ago uh, last week, but it mentioned that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. Uh, we're told directly at the end of Revelation 1 that the lampstands are representative of the churches. Uh, that image is drawn from the tabernacle that was an ancient building as the people of Israel as were traveling in the land. The tabernacle was constructed as a place where God's presence was among them. Uh, the place that he was his, con his presence was specifically most concentrated was in the holiest of holies. It was actually a perfect cube to demonstrate the perfection, the beauty, the harmony of God and his creation. The Holy of Holies was actually a cube. But the tabernacle itself, in which the Holy of Holies was, was a, a place that represented God's special presence with his people. Inside the tabernacle, one of the pieces of furniture was the lampstand. Uh, it was to give light within the tabernacle. It was never to go out. It was to be constantly filled with oil, constantly to be kept burning so that, it, so that it could be visible within the tabernacle. And so Jesus is saying, the churches are his lampstand. In other words, they're his light. They're his presence in the world. They shine forth his grace, his truth. Jesus has ascended to heaven, but in his place, he has left his followers, his church, to demonstrate his presence throughout the world. Now, here's what it says. Notice that it says, Jesus walks among the lampstands. I don't know about you, but that just kind of like grips me. Jesus is present with his churches. The church is close to the heart of Jesus. Now, here's the deal, friends. Southridge, every church, certainly the church nationally, globally, has lots of challenges and lots of issues. Some of you may be new to church, and maybe you had to get through some big hurdles, walk through some pretty significant personal obstacles to even walk through the doors of a church. Because sometimes churches don't represent beautifully the beauty of our God. Maybe you've been hurt by a church. Maybe you've been condemned by a church. Maybe you've had experience with a church and sort of the pretty covers were pulled back. And you saw some things underneath the beautiful exterior that didn't look so nice and didn't look so beautiful. Maybe you know people personally who claim to be followers of Jesus and part of his church, and yet you knew their personal lives, and they were brash, condemning, condescending, arrogant kinds of people. Maybe you knew whole, whole churches who had reputations, 
of being difficult, of being abrasive, of being somewhat vicious in their approach to others. Listen, friends, Southridge as a church has lots of imperfections. Jesus' church in this world has significant levels of imperfections. There's sin, there's wickedness, there's evil. Sometimes we can be condemning. Sometimes we can be abrasive. Sometimes we can be hypocritical. We can say what should be, and yet we're truly not living that out in our lives. And we can confess that. We can humbly acknowledge that's the case. But what just encourages me so strongly is that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. Jesus is still tightly connected to his church. I'm so glad. I'm so thankful that in spite of its imperfections, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our failures, Jesus hasn't ditched the church. Jesus Jesus has never said that he's done. Instead, Jesus continues to walk among the lampstands. He continues to be connected to his church. The church is imperfect, but the church is not peripheral to the attention of Jesus. Jesus' care, his focus, his closeness is directly with the church. So let me just encourage you. Let me just encourage us together. Maybe we see some things in the church, in our church, in other churches, in the church nationally, globally. We see lots of stuff. Oh, that's just not good. But I have hope because Jesus has not abandoned his church. Jesus has not abandoned his people. Jesus walks among us. And so we can critique, we can evaluate. That's appropriate. But be very, very careful. Be very careful in being overly critical, overly condemning, throwing an overly amount of shade on Jesus' church because it is his bride. And he walks among his churches. He walks among his people. So we may have seen lots of stuff that doesn't represent Jesus well that doesn't represent the beauty of God well. And yet Jesus is still connected to his church. Well, from there, he goes on. And first, he gives some affirmations to this church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. His words of affirmation are simply this. His words of affirmation are, uh, you've stayed true to the truth. You faithfully followed after that which is true. When some people came among you, he calls them apostles. Apostles are simply sent ones. Some people might have been sent among you, uh, sort of trying to dilute the truth that I would have you to follow. You've rejected that. And you've chosen to follow after me. And not only that, but you've persevered through hardship. As I said, this letter was written to one of seven churches, the modern day or the ancient Ephesus. There's going to be a couple of pictures on the screen of Ephesus. Uh, Dave Cooper, the one who led our worship this morning, actually traveled there, uh, he and his wife, a couple of weeks ago and took some pictures literally in Ephesus. These are his pictures. And so it was a real place. And one thing that you find out about Ephesus is that there's lots of temples and buildings dedicated to the worship of other gods. 
By the time John was writing, there were 40 major temples where Caesar was worshipped as God, including one in each of the cities of the seven churches addressed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So throughout the Roman Empire, there's 40 major temples where Caesar is worshipped. There's at least one of them in each of the cities that these letters go to in Revelation. Archaeologists have documented at least 25 to 30 temples and sanctuaries to the various gods and goddesses at Ephesus. It was a religious place. The book of Acts tells us about a riot that broke out in Ephesus, primarily because there was a massive temple there to the goddess Artemis, who was a daughter of Zeus. And as people began to follow after Jesus and not after Artemis, it began to have economic impact in the town. When Augustus died in AD 14, the Roman Senate voted to deify him. And so his son Tiberius, who followed him, was actually called the son of God. Augustus died. The Roman Senate declared that he was a divine. And so so his own son Tiberius was literally called son of God. The emperors also began to began to be known as the savior of the world. That's how emperors were referred to. They were referred to as the Lord. Remember when the apostle Paul says, those who declare Jesus as Lord, those words quickly roll off of our tongue. In the ancient world, that was in direct competition to declaring that Caesar was Lord. And so Caesars were sons of God. They were saviors of the world. They were lords. We have a Roman coins from the reign of Emperor Vespasian with the inscription Pon Max, which stands for Pontifus Maximus or greatest priest. The title denoted the position of emperor as the head of the state religion. The emperor, if not totally divine himself, was the gateway to God. He was the go-between between you and God. And so Ephesus was just infiltrated with worship to the emperor. Emperor Caesar is Lord. He's savior of the world. He's the son of God. The goddess Artemis was worshiped. Ephesus was riddled with buildings and statutes for the worship of the idols and for the worship of Caesar. And John's commendation to the people of Ephesus is, you've done well at discerning truth from error. You've rejected those who have said you can both declare Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord. You've rejected the teaching that there's this son of God and that son of God. You've rejected the teaching that Caesar is savior of the world and Jesus is savior of the world. And you've actually done that to your own detriment. And by the way, in ancient cultures and civilizations and towns, your religious life, Your social life, your relational life, your economic life, your political life, your professional life, all of those things were interrelated. And so if you did not worship the goddesses of Artemis, if you did not worship Caesar as Lord, most likely your professional life was impacted. Your ability to engage with the trade guilds was impacted. And not only that, But if people understood where you were coming from, you could bring disfavor on a whole town because of your non-involvement in some of these activities. And so the economic 
capacity of the town might be diminished because you're a follower of Jesus. Your ability to put bread on the table for your tape for your family could be diminished because you're a follower of Jesus. Because you declared that Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord, that could impact deeply your relational connections and the social patterns of the day. And so the commendation of John is, hey, you guys in Ephesus, this is Jesus speaking, you guys have done well. You've held to that which is true. You've persevered even when that has been to the detriment of your own physical needs and your own physical well-being, your circumstantial well-being. And friends, my guess is there's still lines of truth today that we've got to wrestle with. There's, maybe I'll throw out a couple. There's some theological errors that we can fall into. One of them that I think is pretty prominent in our day is, is sort of goes like this. We'll invite people to be followers of Jesus, and we'll connect to that, that if they follow Jesus, their life is going to go really well. It's going to go, they're going to get a good spouse. They're going to have great kids. God's going to open up amazing doors of opportunity in a professional career. Somehow, God's going to lead them to invest in the right things, and they're going to be financially successful. They're going to have a great retirement plan. If if they invite Jesus into their life, they're guaranteed good health, good finances, good relationships, good family, good professional career, all of that stuff. But as you read through Scripture, one of the primary messages is, is that if you become a follower of Jesus, you probably open your life up to a level of circumstantial difficulty, hardship, and challenge that probably surpasses those who are not followers of Jesus. That's the message of Scripture. And so I get it that the message that, hey, follow Jesus and life will go well, that sells, but it's just not true. What's true is Jesus actually invites us into his suffering. Maybe it's not theological. Maybe it's more of a, a personal thing. Kind of one of the greatest doctrines or dogmas of our modern culture is simply this. You've got to be self-sufficient. You've got to pursue self-realization. You've got to have personal autonomy. You've got to have self-actualization because that's where freedom is found. Freedom is found with finding truth deep within yourself and then trying to live that out. Don't let anybody restrict or minimize the avenues that you can pursue because truth and life is found as you look deep within yourself. God wants you to be happy. And so find what makes you happy and go for that because that's what's ultimately true. Culture says... Find your life as best as you can, and you're going to discover what true life is. Scripture says, lose your life to the truth of Jesus, and you'll actually find your life as you lose it. Culture says, discover your life, look within, find yourself, self-actualize, self-realize, make personal autonomy the goal, and you'll have life. Jesus says, release your life, surrender your life, bow your knee, 
And that's where life is. Maybe it's in the moral area. Part of our tree of self-determination, the knowledge of good and evil, part of the self-actualization, the personal enlightenment, actually comes from making self-determined decisions about our sexual natures, about how we can utilize our sexual beings. Teaching of Scripture is that God has made us as males and females, and that sexuality is to be used within the expression and covenant of male-female relationship and marriage. And we've gone deeply into that. Other times we'll go into it more deeply again in the future. But that's not because Scripture desires to be restrictive and traditional and oppressive. Instead, Scripture's goal and the truth of God is, here's actually my design for humanity. Here's actually how I designed humans to function. And you'll ultimately find freedom when you enter into the design, the beautiful design of who God is. Maybe another area that's a challenge can be politics. Sometimes there's folks on both sides of the stream when it comes to politics. On this side, you have people who say, politics is dirty. Politics is nasty. Politics is about power. Followers of Jesus shouldn't be drawn to positions of power. And so distance yourself from it. Run away from it. It's bad. It's messy. It's dirty. It's, it's filthy. Get away from it. And, and so they kind of exclude themselves from having engagement in the political world. Maybe over here, there's an error that says, let's get back control. Let's make sure that we have our way. Let's put our people in power. Let's dominate. Let's legislate. And let's bring about God's kingdom through governmental or political power. Instead, Jesus says, yeah, as a human being, you should desire for human beings to flourish. And so if you, God is calling you into the field of politics, do so as a humble servant of the living God. Do so with the hopes of implementing things that would cause human beings to flourish. But no, make no mistake about it, politics will never bring about the kingdom of God. Politics will never bring about transformation of life because that's what's ultimately needed. And so, yes, participate, love your neighbor, enter politics as an expression of loving your neighbor, but don't enter politics in the hopes of bringing about the kingdom of heaven, because only Jesus can actually overcome the darkness. So, Jesus says to this church, you're latched onto the truth. You've followed after it. You've persevered. And he affirms them. He commends them. Even to the detriment of your own well-being, you've persevered in following that which is true. And then he gives them a little bit of a challenge, some correction. He says, yet I hold this against you in verse 4. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You have hated the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let me just jump to the end. He says, I, you have hated the practice of the Nicolaitans. Notice it says, 
you've hated the practice. It doesn't say you've hated them. Nicolaitans, best as we can tell, are probably a group that encouraged some kind of syncretism, that you could both worship Jesus and declare he is Lord and Savior of the world, but also worship Caesar, declare he is Lord and that he is Savior of the world. You could both worship Jesus, but you could also worship Artemis. Most likely, that's what the Nicolaitans were promoting. But Jesus' words are, you've held true, you've done a great job, and yet you're forsaken the love that you had at first. Now, we're not quite sure whether that's love for God, love for one another, love for those around them in their communities. Most likely, it's some combination of all three with love for God being first and foremost since every other love cascades down from that. And so Jesus says to them through John, yes, you fought for truth well, but in fighting for truth, your love, your devotion for me has diminished. Maybe in their fight for truth, they've become jaded. Maybe in their fight for truth, they've become bitter against those they've needed to fight against. And Jesus says, I want your love to be restored. By the way, when he says that he's going to remove the lampstand, that's not a reference to loss of personal salvation. What that's a reference is, is the fact that if, if you as a church are not representing me well in the world, I may remove you as a church. You, may no, you might no longer be my gathering of people because you're not reflecting my truth. And so he encourages them to repent, to change direction. Here's what I want us to hear, friends. We can never be so busy or never so passionate about defending truth that we lose being people of love. We can never be so aggressive or action-oriented in defending truth, even if it's God's truth, that we fail to be people of love. I put it this way, pursuing the truth of Christ should never excuse us from showing the love of Christ. Pursuing the truth of Christ should never excuse us from showing the love of Christ. Our resistance of error should never detour our hearts from being soft toward God and loving toward people. Our resistance of error should never detour our hearts from being soft toward God and loving toward people. You know, I'm on Twitter a little bit and kind of look at what people are doing and stuff. And I don't follow this person, but their tweet came across my feed. And uh, this person said this as they were tweeting their follower of Jesus and kind of claiming to speak truth. And, and here was their tweet. And I don't want to cast condemnation, but I do think it's worthy of some critique. This person said, things I don't care about. Your experiences, your feelings about what Scripture says, how you take the tone of my tweets. Now listen, friends. What people think should not determine what we believe to be true. But I want us to hear this loud and clear. When God wanted us to receive his truth, 
He did not shout from heaven with a megaphone. He came here as a baby. To say that we don't care what people think, how they feel, or what their experiences are, is a direct contradiction of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus came as a base baby precisely so that he could enter our pain. Jesus came as a human being precisely so that he could feel the human experience. Jesus came as a human being precisely so that he could be counted one of us. Before Jesus spoke a word of truth, Jesus did experience our feelings, our pain, the harshness of reality. Friends, listen. I realize that there's a lot pulling at the church of Jesus in these days. I realize there's lots of things happening when it comes to truth. But I think we need to hear this corrective that Jesus is giving the church of Ephesus as well. May pursuing the truth of Jesus never excuse us from showing the love of Jesus. May we never say, hey, we just speak truth and you can take it or leave it. I don't want to be there. I don't want what people think to determine what we believe to be true. That's not good either. But friends, I don't want to be calloused to the pain, the hardship, the suffering, the sadness of our world. We are called not just to speak truth, but to be God's love to people. And first and foremost, that's cultivated through a renewed love of Jesus himself. doesn't mean we try harder to love others. It just means that the more that we cultivate our love for Jesus, the more that our love for others will automatically grow as well. I'm going to ask our team to come up, and we're going to enter into our time of communion. I already mentioned that in Genesis chapter 1, we're told about the tree of life. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, here's what Jesus says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All the way at the end of Scripture in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, the tree of life is mentioned again. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God into the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. By the way, just a little quick note, bearing 12 crops of fruit. How many crops does a tree bear in a year? Typically just one, right? In other words, the, the imagery, the symbolism here is so rich that the fruit of this tree is going to be abundant. It's going to be generous. It's going to be overflowing, yielding its fruit every month. 
And the leaves of the tree, listen, here's what's fruitful about it. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In other words, the tree of life is going to bring this just magnificent healing. This magnificent restoration of the wonder and beauty of what God created all the way back in the Garden of Eden. When we ate of the tree of self-determination and we're banned from eating the tree of life. Question, how do we get from Genesis 1 and 2, that tree of life, to Revelation 22, where the tree of life is the healing of the nations? Well, in the middle stands another tree. This tree is barren. This tree has a cross beam on it. This tree is saturated with blood. To this tree is now the flesh of God. The the tree in the middle is not filled with life. It's in Genesis 1 or in Revelation 22. The tree in the middle takes life. The tree in the middle has a person on it that's been crucified. The tree in the middle holds the person who spoke life into being in Genesis 1, who will bring the healing of the nations in Revelation 22. And yet in the middle of the story, He's crucified on a tree. His blood soaks the tree. His blood runs down the cross. His flesh is nailed to the tree. This tree brings death. So that ultimately... The tree of life can bring the healing of the nations. Communion is a time where we take a wafer that represents the broken flesh of Jesus. A cup of juice that represents the flowing blood of Jesus down the tree. And we take these elements and remind ourselves that the only way that we're welcomed into the tree of life is through this tree. The only way that we're welcomed into the tree of life is through this tree of death of the very Son of God. It's not important that you are a member of our church to participate. What we do ask is that you have received Jesus as your Savior. That you have made the declaration, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior of the world. That the only means to life is not through Caesar, not through a flourishing Roman government, not through economic prosperity, the only path to eternal life. The only path to the tree of life is through the tree of death 
on which Jesus died. So our team's going to play, and I'm going to invite you to stand in just a second. We have stations up here at the front. We have some in the aisles. There's some in the balcony as well. I'm going to invite you to take a wafer and a cup of juice back to your seat, and then we'll take that together. Uh, there's a couple of prepackaged elements as well, if you'd like them instead. Uh, so let's stand. Let's move to one of these stations. Take the elements with you back to your seat, and then we'll take them together. Genesis 1, God creates trees and says, this is for humanity to be sustained. Eating of the fruit of these trees will bring life. Revelation 22, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's restoration. There's harmony with God. In the middle, there's this tree. The fruit of this tree is Jesus' broken body. The fruit of this tree is Jesus' blood poured out. The fruit of this tree brings us life that is true. It brings us eternal life with God himself. And so let's take the wafer. Let's take the cup of juice. Let me read this, these verses from Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 that I opened the service with. And then we'll take of the fruit of this tree together. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's eat of the fruit of this tree. stand and sing the song together that reminds us of the fruit of this tree, a Jesus blood that brings our healing. 
and ultimately the healing of the nations.
Lord, may you help us to be people who are true to your word, who are willing to endure hardship and difficulty, even as the people of Ephesus did, because of their commitment to your truth. Lord, may we also be people filled with love, love for you, devotion to you, love, grace, kindness, and compassion to our neighbor, our brother, our sister, the person with the opposite position, the person who might be in error. May we be filled with them as love. May we be filled with love for them as well. Help us to be people of grace and truth. Help us to be a church of grace and truth, even as your son was. May we pursue truth. And may we love well. And we thank you that you walk among us. That you are present with us through your Holy Spirit to strengthen us. We ask this in the name of Jesus and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless. May we be people of grace and truth.